Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Brenda Janowitz about the Audrey Hepburn estate. Brenda is the author of eight novels, including The Grace Kelly Dress and The Liz Taylor Ring. She is the former books correspondent for Pop Sugar, and her work has appeared in The New York Times, Real Simple, the Washington Post, and the New York Post, among others. She is a graduate of Cornell University and Hofstra Law and lives in New York with her husband and two sons. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. Right. <laughs> And now for my read-alike request segment. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us. While lots of websites use algorithms to try and recommend similar books, I rarely find that these recommendations make sense because they do not focus on what it is I like about a particular book. Today's request is from Janelle of at JCWLIB, and she selected Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Jillian McAllister, which happens to be my favorite book of 2022. Jen witnesses her 18-year-old son, Todd, murdering a complete stranger in the middle of the night right in front of their house. Devastated that her son, with whom she is close, has taken someone's life, Jen cries herself to sleep on the sofa. The following morning, she wakes up anxious to begin understanding why her son committed this horrific crime, but instead finds herself not on the morning after the crime, but the morning before it happened. Each night she goes to sleep, she wakes up further back in time. Jen begins to realize that each day she lands on is teaching her something about the events that lead up to her son's actions as she continues to search for why this all occurred, and more importantly, search for how to stop it from happening this time around. Janelle enjoyed the book because she really liked the mystery and how the story was told in a reverse timeline. I could not find many reverse timeline stories, so I include the one I did find, and then I include some other books that remind me a lot of Wrong Place, Wrong Time. My first recommendation is All the Missing Girls by Megan Miranda. 
Her novel is a nail-biting story about the disappearance of two young women a decade apart, told in reverse. It's been 10 years since Nicolette Farrell left her rural hometown after her best friend, Corinne, disappeared from Cooley Ridge without a trace. Back again to tie up loose ends and care for her ailing father, Nick is soon plunged into a shocking drama that reawakens Corinne's case. Within days of Nick's return, a girl named Annalise goes missing. Told backwards, day 15 to day one, from the time Annalise goes missing, Nick works to unravel the truth about her younger neighbor's disappearance, revealing shocking truths about her friends, her family, and what really happened to Corinne that night 10 years ago. I think this is a good read-alike for Wrong Place, Wrong Time, because both stories are told in reverse. All the Missing Girls does not have the time travel and reflection elements that Wrong Place, Wrong Time has, but it is similar in the way that the story unfolds going backward in time. My next recommendation is These Silent Woods by Kimmy Cunningham Grant. These Silent Woods features a father and daughter duo who have been living in a remote cabin off the grid for eight years in the woods. Lacking electricity and running water, Cooper and Finch's only connections to the outside world are Cooper's friend Jake, who owns their cabin and brings them supplies once a year, and a mysterious older neighbor named Scotland. But when Jake does not show up with supplies and Finch begins to push back on their isolated lifestyle, a series of events are set in motion that will challenge the life Cooper has created for them. While the story is told in a standard format, I think this is a great read-alike for Wrong Place, Wrong Time, because the focus in both books is on a close parent-child relationship and how strong the love for a child can be. In both books, the characters are normal, everyday people instead of the off-kilter people you so often find in thrillers. And the mysteries are really thoughtful and creative in both as well. The last recommendation for a read-alike for Wrong Place, Wrong Time is Before She Disappeared by Lisa Gardner. Frankie Elkin spends her life doing what no one else will, searching for missing people the world has stopped looking for. A new case brings her to Mattapan, a Boston neighborhood with a rough reputation. She is searching for Angelique Badeau, a Haitian teenager who vanished from her high school months earlier. Resistance from the Boston PD and the victim's wary family tells Frankie she's on her own, and she soon learns she's asking questions someone doesn't want answered. Before She Disappeared is another strong mystery with a cast of regular people just living their lives when something terrible happens. Just as in Wrong Place, Wrong Time, Before She Disappeared pulls you into the story and provides a lot of food for thought long after you finish the book. There are several other books with very strong mysteries and credible characters that are worth reading. Girls Like Us by Christina Alger, Woman on Fire by Lisa Barr, and Don't Look for Me by Wendy Walker. I also think those would make good read-alikes for Wrong Place, Wrong Time. Thanks, Janelle, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Brenda Janowitz. Welcome, Brenda. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here, because I always love chatting with you. And we just recently chatted, you and Jillian Cantor and I did, for my Patreon community, and that was so much fun. And so now I'm glad you're here so we can talk about the Audrey Hepburn estate. Thank you. Yeah, that, that last one was too much fun, but I'm excited to be here now. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was really fun. And you guys talked about books you wish you'd written, which I thought was such a clever topic. And it really resonated with my listeners in my Patreon community. Oh, that's so great. I'm so happy to hear it. You know, since Jillian and I are real life friends, we're always talking about things like this. So I don't know. It just came to me. And I, we're, we're always talking about the books we wish we had written, I guess. <laughs> and we don't always agree. So I knew it would be fun. Very fun. And before we dive in, I wanted to say thank you so much for including my name in the back of your book. I got to the end. I always read everything like the author's notes, the acknowledgments. And I'm like, oh, there I am. So thank you. 
Well, thank you for all of your support. I mean, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you over these past few years. I agree completely. So we will now dive into this wonderful new book of yours. Why don't you give me a quick synopsis of the Audrey Hepburn estate for those that won't have read it yet? I would love to. The Audrey Hepburn estate is inspired by Audrey's film, Sabrina. And so it's the story of a woman who goes back to the home where she grew up, just as it's being ready to be set for demolishing. And when she goes back to Long Island to sort of see her home for the last time, it brings two men from her past back into her life. So, you know, there's a lot of shades of Sabrina there. There's a love triangle, there's the estate, and then a lot of Audrey Hepburn influence, her movies, her life, a little of everything. So it's a love triangle, but ultimately it's a story about the true meaning of home. And you have a wonderful author's note at the end where you talk about all the different inspirations from Audrey's life. And I wanted to make sure I highlighted that because I had so much fun reading through that and going back and forth at the end and you know, going back to the chapters and thinking about the different things you include. And that must have taken a lot of time, but I'm glad you did that. Thank you. Yeah, it does take a lot of time, but I'm glad I did it too, because, you know, this habit of the Easter eggs, it began with the Liz Taylor-ing, my last book, and it was actually Jillian Cantor. <laughs> she was helping me with revisions, and I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but she was sort of like, why is it this and not that? And I said, oh, well, that's because Liz Taylor, you know, whatever little factoid I was inspired by. And she was like, oh, that's fun. That's the sort of thing readers would like to hear. Maybe, you know, you should write down a few of these for when you're on book tour. And I said, well, I couldn't possibly do that. There's a million in each chapter. And she said, oh, even better. So I started keeping a list. And I realized by the time I was promoting Liz, I was already writing Audrey. And, you know, you sort of forget. Sometimes you're on tour and people say, oh, what was your inspiration for this? Or were you thinking of that? And you're sort of like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember what I was thinking about two years ago. So I decided to continue the tradition with Audrey. And even though it does take a ton of time, it's so much fun. And a, a funny story about that, by the time I had finished the Liz Tailoring and I did the Easter eggs, when I was on tour, someone said, oh, did you do this on purpose? But it wasn't something that was listed in the back. And I realized I had left out an Easter egg. <laughs> You're like, whoops. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I did mean that. <laughs> right. So it is fun to include that in the back. And it's it's good for my little writer's brain who forgets. <laughs> well, it's natural. And you're talking about people asking you on tour. I always feel like people will say to me, what book would you recommend? I've read such and such. And then, of course, everything flies out of my brain. Yes. So I'm sure there's a little bit of that on book tour, too. Like, wait a minute. So to have it all right there together where you're not having to try to recollect in front of an entire group of people is probably very nice. Yes, it's so true. It's funny because when I was the Pop Sugar Books correspondent, I loved it because people would say, what are you reading? And I would say, oh, I wrote about it. (laughs) I would just send them a link to the books that I had rounded up for the previous season. So now that I'm not doing that anymore, I have the same thing that you were describing. Someone says, what should I read? And everything falls out of my brain. And so now I keep a notebook of what I'm reading just so I can remember. So when a friend says, oh, I'm going on vacation, I want to read something like X, I get out my little handy notebook and I'm like, oh, well, I just read this. (laughs) That's a great way to do it. And I do the same thing. I send my She Reads columns and I send my Buzz Reads columns. Uh But still there are times when I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know. Or people text me and I'll send them two or three. And then an hour later, I'll send them two or three. And after like four texts, I'm like, okay, I promise I'm not sending you any more book recommendations. (laughs) You know, you keep thinking about them and they keep coming. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, this book would be good. Oh, wait a second. Right, right. Oh, I know I'm the same way. 
you know, because book lovers, we, we want to talk about books all the time. <laughs> exactly. So as I was reading your book, I was so curious, did this estate exist? And was the whole issue of trying to film it there versus filming it in L.A., did all of that really happen with Sabrina? So, yes, there was an issue with the filming of Sabrina. They tried to, at first, film it in Glen Cove. The winds coming off the water sort of conspired against them. So they ended up filming in L.A. So there is not an Audrey Hepburn Sabrina house on Long Island. I, I researched it. Up and down, I contacted the Glen Cove Historical Society. Of course, this was all during COVID, so no one was there. But I bought a million different books to try to figure it out. But no, there's not actually a place because they never filmed it. They filmed it in other places. Some of the interior shots were supposedly done at different mansions on Long Island. But what I decided to do, once I realized that there wasn't actually a Sabrina estate on Long Island, I talked to my editor about this, and she's from Long Island as well. We decided. It could really just be the Gilded Ages, the the Gilded Age mansions on Long Island that I was really referring to, and that this was actually a good thing because now I could use all of them as inspiration. And I visited so many of them. I'm so obsessed with the Gilded Age mansions on Long Island. And, you know, most of them are open to the public at this point, and most of them serve as either public spaces or hotels. So you sort of have access or museums. So I've been in quite a lot of them. So I sort of took inspiration from everything, a little of everything. Ohika Estate, I mentioned in the book, I've been there for countless weddings. (laughs) They even have a restaurant there. You could just go there for dinner. So I really was inspired by all of the Gilded Age mansions on Long Island and not just one. I'm obsessed with the Gilded Age. Like That is just (laughs) such a fascinating time period to me. So I was thrilled to pieces when it was in your book. And that's why I was just kind of curious if this estate actually existed or what had happened with it, because that was really an interesting part of the story. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I did, you know, a lot of this was written while we were still in the period of COVID and in our homes. Uh, So a lot of the research was done online, unfortunately. And I kept saying, oh, I want to go here. I want to go there. Since then, I have been able to leave my house (laughs) and go to different places. But there's so much research online. It's fascinating. And all of these places, most of them have historical status. So most of them have websites. Uh, So the research, I was really able to do quite a lot, surprisingly, even for my house. (laughs) What was your favorite part of the research? Oh, goodness. So much. I mean, the research for this one was so delicious because everything about Audrey Hepburn's life is just so fascinating. I I was just endlessly fascinated by her. You know, now I've done three Hollywood starlets. I've done Grace Kelly, Elizabeth Taylor, and now Audrey Hepburn. And they have all just surprised and amazed me in a million different ways. So, I mean, one interesting part of the research is deciding whether or not the old films hold up, (laughs) because not all of them do, of course. Uh, Sabrina does hold up, and I've watched it about only about a million times at this point. In working on the book and certain scenes I've sort of memorized. But I think my favorite part of the research was discovering things about Audrey Hepburn that I didn't know. I think that when I started to, you know, whenever I start to research, I think, oh, this will be so easy because I'm obsessed with these Hollywood starlets and I know so much about them already. And then I very soon figure out that I know nothing. (laughs) And so I'm constantly surprised. Uh, The most surprising thing I learned about Audrey Hepburn was that she lived under Nazi occupation for five years when she lived in Holland as a child. I had no idea. I think a lot of us, when we think about Audrey Hepburn, just think of 
the glamour and the chic gowns and the little black dresses, but her life was so many different things. And I think that really helps you understand her more, right? That there's just so much more behind her. And it certainly sheds a light on her work later in life for UNICEF. That's what I was just going to say. I actually was familiar with that. And I knew she'd had all those malnutrition issues that you Mm. talk about at the end and that that plagued her for the rest of her life. But I do think it sheds a light on the fact that then she did so much charitable work later in life. Oh, yeah. I mean, she really, it it became her life. It was her life's mission. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And actually, all three of the starlets that I focused on later in life used their celebrity for good. You include some great twists and turns in this one. Was that something that you intentionally did? Or was that something that as you wrote, you decided to do? How did that come about? Yeah, you know, when I'm sitting down to write a book, I'm always thinking about what I love to read. And I want to infuse my books with that same sort of feeling that I get when I'm reading other books that I love. And I guess I do love being surprised. And I do love the twists and turns. So that was something I really was focused on infusing into the book, sort of these twists and surprises. And I guess, you know, in being inspired by Audrey, I was so surprised by so many things I'd learned about her. I wanted that feeling of surprise to be in the book. And do you map them out ahead of time? Or as you're writing, do you think, oh, okay, wait a minute, this should go this direction, or I should include this here? You know, I wish I was one of those writers who could outline and be really careful about it and not waste time by just writing herself into corners. But unfortunately, (laughs) with these last three books I've written, I just sort of wrote them and then worried about it later. So it's a lot of free writing and just learning who the characters are and figuring it out as I go. But then that makes the second and third drafts so much more difficult to do (laughs) because there's so much work involved. So yeah, unfortunately, I did not know where I was going with this book. I think I had a sense of the ending at one point, but I really was sort of writing with with each of these three books. I really sort of wrote it just out of nowhere. And then on the second draft, I said to myself, okay, now let's outline and figure out where everything actually belongs. And that's when the heavy editing really came into play. And when you made sure all the twists and turns would make sense and play out correctly. Well, right. And they have to be spaced out. You can't have all your twists right in the beginning (laughs) or, you know, I wanted twists sort of throughout. It was important to me that, you know, sometimes you're reading a book and well, for me, if I'm not obsessed with a book, I put it down after 50 pages. So that's the first thing I'm always thinking about how I'm drawing the reader in and keeping her engaged. And the 50 page mark is always something I think about because it's something I do personally (laughs) when I'm just reading for pleasure. So I thought about that, and I always want to think about that first twist. And so I think my first twist comes approximately around page 50, or at least that's what I meant it to be. (laughs) You're like ballpark somewhere in there. (laughs) I'm like, give me till page 53, readers. (laughs) I think that that's a good goal, though, because I'm the same way at this point. There are so many books out there. And if I'm not loving it by page 50 to 75, I'm like, this is just not my book. Right. I agree. I agree. Time is so limited these days and life is so hard. (laughs) If you're not obsessed with what you're reading, it's like, why bother? And I I think that's why some people, you know, a lot of adults I speak to, oh, I don't read anymore. I don't have time, blah, blah, blah. I think that's why people don't prioritize reading, you know, because they're reading things they think they have to read to seem smart or that their book club chose, but they're not into. 
And I think, you know, rediscovering that joy of reading is such a gift you can give yourself. So if I'm not obsessed with my book and wanting to be reading it every minute of the day, I just put it down. And I think people sometimes feel like they need permission to do that. Yes. Not everyone feels comfortable (laughs) doing that, but I'm like, no, 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 you need to go right ahead because there are so many books out there. Agreed. Someone once told me, no, 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 you can't put it down because what if it gets really good at page 200? I'm like, well, then I'll I'll just have missed out. It's okay. (laughs) And I'll have wasted my time reading the first 200 pages. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, home and what constitutes home is a theme in your book. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, with these last three books, I've been pairing a Hollywood starlet with an heirloom item. So with the Grace Kelly dress, it was a wedding dress. And with the Liz Taylor ring, it was a humongous diamond ring. And I just thought to myself, well, how am I going to top that? (laughs) So this time we had to go with an entire house. (laughs) Now I can't wait to hear what your next one's going to (laughs) be. A country. I have paired an actress with a country (laughs) or an (laughs) island or something. (laughs) Oh, God. You know, but it's fascinating because when we think of these Hollywood starlets, we do think of one particular thing. And a lot of times when people talk to me about Grace Kelly, they want to talk about what a beautiful bride she was because she became a princess and her dress is still one of the most iconic wedding dresses of all time. When we think about Elizabeth Taylor, we think about that incredible jewelry collection, especially the diamonds. When I was researching that book, I thought there was only one. I was surprised to know she had quite, quite, quite a few <laughs> ginormous diamonds. So had to narrow that down. And when I re- started researching Audrey Hepburn, I learned that she was a homebody. I did not know that. And to her, home was sort of the ultimate and it was where she found peace. She loved being at home. She loved her family. And she thought that Your first home was a rite of passage, something so important. So home and actually gardens also and food in particular were so incredibly important to Audrey Hepburn. So, you know, in a way, the research sort of shapes the narrative um, and vice versa. So I think that's why I'm sort of researching as I go and I'm figuring out the plot as I go and I'm just sort of layering things on as I learn more. I think the concept of home, especially after living through the pandemic the last three years, is something that people are more focused on. And I find it in stories more often. And I think it's something that we're all grappling with. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't think of it that way. You know, I'm a homebody. So for me, it was sort of natural. And I think maybe that's why I think that's part of why I love Sabrina so much. I'm just obsessed with this idea that you know, she lived in the house, but she was the chauffeur's daughter. So she lived over the garage, like just all these little nuances and things that complicate the concept of home. You know, she goes to Paris, but then she comes back. There's just so many different things connecting to home in that film that it was just sort of like a natural fit with me. And so, yeah, I hope, I hope readers, the concept of home resonates with them. I, I think that's so interesting the way you've put it. I love that. Well, and definitely it resonates with Emma. And she says over and over again, I grew up there and people respond to her. I didn't know there was a granddaughter. And she's like, no, I, you know, so it's this kind of conversation she has over and over again. Yeah. I mean, you're always sort of going when you're writing a book, you're always sort of like grappling with your characters and yourself and what you think. And one of the things that I was really exploring in this book is our tendency to make the same mistake over and over again. You know, with the Liz Taylor-ing, one of the things I infused in that book was the stories, like the family lore we pass down and the stories we tell each other. 
But for Audrey, I think it's more the stories we tell ourselves because Emma does have such a strong sense of so many different things. And these two men in her life and and her friends also sort of are constantly challenging that, (laughs) that sort of perception she's got. But a lot of the things that we form as children, it's hard to let go of. So sometimes the things you think as a child are sort of so important or meaningful. When you're an adult, sometimes those feelings change. But sometimes you maintain them because they remind you of certain things. And I think that's what kept happening to Emma. She associated it with her father and a happy childhood and running all over the estate. And she just had a hard time kind of moving past that. It's interesting because my parents, so we moved a lot growing up and my parents lived in their the last house that they lived in for 22 years, but it was when they were older. And when they were having to move into assisted living, it was really hard for my mom. Like she mm. did not want to give up that house. And I think a lot of it was more tied to moving into assisted living. It was really actually independent living and then they moved. But she just didn't want to give up the house. And I've never really had that feeling, I guess, because we did move a lot. And so it doesn't really matter. A house is a house is a house to me. And so I, I had a hard time kind of understanding how tied she was to the house. And when the people bought it, they made all these changes and she hated that. And so, you know, it was just interesting because it really made me think a lot about her while I was reading your book. That's fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's just making me think because I was thinking about that a lot when I was writing the Liz Tailoring, because a lot of the stories people were telling me about jewelry handed down was that, you know, maybe it was put into a different piece and the person who had given it to you, what, you know, no, that's a necklace, not a bracelet. But yeah, home is the same way. I I was recently, I had to attend a funeral and I drove by my childhood home. (laughs) And I said to my husband, take a picture, take a picture. And I was sort of like telling him, well, when we lived there, you know, we didn't have that. (laughs) And I haven't lived there for a million years. And I was sort of like, well, they do that now. (laughs) Like looking down my nose at the way these people, as if it's my house anymore, you know. But it's what you associate with it. And the house we grew up in when I went to high school, which is farther out west, it's a different color and a different door. And that used to also drive my parents crazy. But I just was like, okay, we don't live there anymore. And so I think it's really interesting how people associate things. I mean, I love my parents. I was very, very close with them. So it's not a sense of, you know, I didn't have a great experience growing up. It's more just, I think I tie myself to the relationships and they were tying themselves also to the place. And some of it's generational, I think, too. Mm, Yeah, that's true. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people about this, about this concept of home, because one of the questions was, why would Emma be so upset when she learned that the estate was going to be demolished? And I didn't think that required explanation. I I just (laughs) like, why wouldn't you be upset? And that was a question. So I asked readers while I was finishing up my Liz Taylor tour. And everyone I spoke to was like, of course, you'd be upset. Someone came up to me, she said, that actually happened to me. And I was hysterical. And she just like, couldn't get over it. Um, I think it can be a really emotional thing, not just passing the house down, but seeing it destroyed. It's like a completely different thing. Especially something like this estate. I mean, I do understand that. Something built in the late 1800s with all of these Gilded Age touches. So I I totally get it. But I thought you did a good job of kind of hammering that home in a good way because Emma kept saying to people, I grew up there. And then she kept getting the same response, but she just kept saying the same thing. And it was really important to her. It was. It is. And I thought you did a good job of conveying that. Thank you. Well, what was the highlight of writing the book? Oh, goodness. Oh, that's such an interesting question. You know, it takes it takes me about a year to write a book. So I feel like there were probably a lot of highlights. But one in particular 
is meeting the author of Dutch Girl, who I was actually just emailing with this morning, Robert Matson. It was one of my key pieces of research because, as I said earlier, I never knew that Audrey Hepburn lived under Nazi occupation as a child. So I read that book uh, for research. I read a number of them, but Robert's book, since he worked with Audrey Hepburn's son, Luca, it just seemed to be the most accurate and the most um, complete. So that was the book I really, I found myself going back to over and over again. And when I worked on those Easter eggs, I wanted to make sure, you know, I was getting all the information across the way he had intended. So I reached out to him and I never thought he'd get back to me. And he wrote back and he was so lovely. And now we're in touch. And he's read the book. He actually just did a blog post about it this morning, which was great. So that was certainly a highlight, especially as you mentioned, like coming out of COVID. It's like we've forgotten how to connect with people. So (laughs) it was really lovely reaching out and getting such a lovely response from him. That is lovely. When you first said the Dutch girl, for some reason, I thought the Dutch house and I thought, okay, where are we going with this? (laughs) And then I was like, oh, no, no, no. I just heard wrong. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? That was one of the books I reread because there, it turns out there's quite a lot of books about a house that sort of like revolve around a house. And I thought a lot about that. I certainly wanted to infuse like that Gothic feeling, like, is the house haunted? What's going on here? But I thought it was really important to sort of think about how other writers were writing about an actual house. So that book, I love that book. (laughs) That that was one I turned to. I've never read it. But Kate Morton does a good job of writing about houses as characters as well, I think. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So which character did you enjoy writing the most and which character was the least enjoyable? Ooh, that's an interesting one. You know, I think I connect most deeply with Emma. So I really loved working on her. And the main character, of course, changes so much throughout the course of writing. There's so many different iterations. So first, as the research sort of deepened, I changed her profession. She became a chef because Audrey Hepburn had this connection with food and loved food so much. But then, you know, as I was sort of like exploring her story and figuring out who she would ultimately choose in this love triangle. It was just sort of fun to explore the different aspects of her. As for a character I didn't enjoy writing, I'm not sure that there is one. I certainly found it challenging writing a love triangle because at at some point in the pandemic, I attended one of Jill Santapalo's book talks, and she's just such a phenomenal writer. And I love everything she writes. One of the things she said was that You know, she wanted it to, because I said to her, I really felt like your protagonist could have chosen either man. And I felt like that in in two of her books, that like either guy would have been perfect for her. And so I sort of took that to heart. I really didn't want it to be like, you know, in like those rom-coms where it's like the guy she's dating turns out to be horrible. It's like, surprise, he's a terrible guy. I didn't want it to be like that. I wanted it to be two great guys. And I remember when my husband was reading the first draft, at one point he was like, I actually don't know who she's going to end up with. And I remember saying, like, if you were a woman, it would be so obvious. <laughs> but he's like, no, I don't think so. And then when my agent read it, she was like, I really didn't know who she was going to end up with. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I think the iteration that you're now reading, I think maybe it's a little more obvious because the book has changed a little. But I wanted to create two like fully realized men each of whom she could have ended up with. So hopefully I've done that. (laughs) I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's ever like a character I didn't enjoy writing. Maybe if one's particularly challenging, but no, I just love learning about these fictional people that I made up in my head. (laughs) 
maybe didn't enjoy writing is not the right thing, but maybe was just the toughest to write, like you had the hardest time connecting with them or getting them down on the page? Well, you know, it's always harder for me to write male characters because I think my inclination is just to always write them as women. <laughs> so I definitely have to work harder and think like, would a man say this and try to get more? It's it's harder for me to get into that headspace because I'm a woman. And so, and and I love other women and I find women endlessly fascinating. So I think that there's something that's a little easier for me in terms of writing women. So maybe maybe the male characters. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, Brenda, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Ooh, well, I read something very, very juicy. I got an advanced copy of a novel called Bad Summer People by Emma Rosenblum. And ooh, it was good. <laughs> it's, it's sort of how it sounds. It's about summer people summering uh, on Fire Island, and they are naughty, naughty, naughty. So it was just like a really fun, smart, like escape. Uh, so it was just, I really enjoyed reading it. I read it while I was with the kids in Florida. So it was sort of like perfect to read in the warm weather. It's coming out at the end of May and I would highly recommend it. I have seen it everywhere, but I haven't read it. But I'll tell you, it's so funny because Jane L. Rosen has the book coming out called On Fire Island. And I always say it's interesting how different topics or places or things bubble to the surface at the same time. I don't even know Fire Island. And now there are two books coming out like a month apart from each other taking place on the same island. I know. It's so fascinating. Jane is a friend. I haven't read her book yet, but I'm excited for it. I think the tone of Jane's will be different than Emma's book. Emma's is sort of like a little more juicy. And I think Jane's sounds a little more heartfelt, tugging at the heartstrings. I haven't read it yet, though. Uh, yeah, I always find that fascinating too. And it, it always, it, it's so fascinating when it comes about where there's two books, sometimes you'll see them mentioned, their deals will be mentioned in Publishers Marketplace. And it's two things about the exact same topic. Like we had those two Agatha Christie is missing books a while back. Exactly. It's just funny how they come together. Yes, I'm sure the books are very different. But I don't even know Fire Island, though I will apparently after reading these books. But it's just funny that, you know, all of a sudden there's Fire Island within a month of each other. And you're right, Agatha Christie, it happens regularly. And all these Mitford books, I mean, the Mitford yes. sisters are everywhere. So it's just kind of funny. It's funny you say that about the Mitford books, because when the first one came out, I was like, oh, that's so clever. I never thought of that before. And then I was in my basement and I keep a lot of the old arcs down there and I found an old Mitford book. So <laughs> apparently I just missed it. But there's been a wave lately. I'm like, okay, I'm Mitford it out. I know. I know. It's fascinating. Remember, there were all those Jane Austen books 10 years ago. It's just funny to see. Well, is there anything else that you would recommend before we wrap up? Well, we were talking about my friend Jillian Cantor, and she's got a book coming out in the fall called The Fiction Writer, and it is phenomenal. I absolutely cannot wait for everyone to discover this book. It's one of those books, you know, your writer friends will send you books and be like, is this a thing? Is this anything? And I was like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. Like, send it to our agent immediately. <laughs> and she was like, I don't know. I'm like, oh, no, I know. It's fantastic. And, you know, in the editing process, it's only gotten better. So I'm really excited for everyone to discover that one, too. I can't wait to read that. When she was talking about it in our conversation, I thought that sounds fantastic. And I love her book, The Lost Letter. And I recommend it to people regularly. And it just showed up on my read-alike segment recently because somebody had asked about a historical fiction book and there were certain things that appealed to them. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds like The Lost Letter. So I threw it out there. So I can't wait for her new one. 
Oh, fun. Yeah, she's just a phenomenal writer. And this book is a bit of a departure from what you've read from her in the past. And I think that makes it even more exciting. That's awesome. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me again today. I always love chatting with you, and I'm glad you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you for having me. This was great. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.